Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with your hosts, Jake and Randy, discussing all things freestyle frisbee and whatever else that comes up. Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. Hey, Jake, how you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you, Randy? I am doing great as well. And you know what? I have a question for you again today, and it is not Frisbee related. So here we go. I would like to know, what are your top two favorite foods? My top two favorite foods. Interesting. Uh, I have to give that a little bit of thought. Um, let's see. I would say one is, and I'm not sure if this is the top or the second, but it's a chicken tikka masala, extra hot. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Extra hot. Yep. Yep. I really like the spicy foods. What's the other one? You know, I really love Mexican food, but it's really hard for me to pick a specific dish because I just like all of it. But I guess I'm going to go with uh, beef enchiladas. Wow. Okay. So I think it's okay to, you know, just carve out a whole cuisine as well. Because I love Thai food and it's really hard to like, oh my God, what dish do I want? And I love Mexican food. So I'm with you on that. So yep. chicken tiki masala and beef enchiladas. Yep. What are your favorite foods? Well, that is an interesting question. So I'm going to go with not so much a dish. I'm going to go number two, avocados. Oh, and number yeah. one, avocados. <laughs> <laughs> the first half is number one, and the second half is number two. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, you you slice an avocado open, it's got two halves, so there's number two and number one. So I have an avocado every day. I just think they're the best thing in the whole world. Do you just eat the avocado raw with a spoon? Or yes, what? Oh. absolutely. Raw, or, you know, you can put an egg in it. I mean, there's so many ways that you can do it. Put it on, some, on a burrito, Mexican food. Mm -hmm. I mean, endless options for the avocados. So, and now speaking of avocados, so avocados are also a big thing at Virginia States. I was thinking the and same thing. <laughs> I just got my postcard not too long ago, and I am seriously considering going there. Of course, it all depends on what happens with, you know, vaccinations and travel and COVID and where we're at. But I'm pretty hopeful that by September, this is going to happen. And I'm just waiting to kind of pull the trigger when I get the final comfort zone and good to do to you that's awesome i i totally want to go i'm kind of in the same mind space as you are if i can make it happen uh, i'm going to make it happen and COVID has a lot to do with whether it's possible or not but um like we're also in the process of buying a house here in hawaii as you i'm sure already know um, yes <laughs> but who knows like that what is that going to entail are we going to be in the middle of a remodel by the time uh, Virginia States comes along. Um, it also overlaps with Lori's work schedule. So, oh my goodness, there's so many things to plan. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Well, if it's in the middle of a remodel, that's a good time to get out of town. So, I mean. Yep. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. Totally. So, speaking of travel, I think that's a perfect segue into our episode for today. So, we are going to continue our conversation with Amy Schiller and talk about some of her favorite travel experiences. Enjoy. Well, you've traveled to a lot of different countries and have traveled all over the world. So I was wondering if you could share with us some of your favorite traveling experiences. Yeah, I was I was thinking back to Kalmar, Sweden. Uh, we went to uh, Norway and Sweden in 1999. 
and played in a WIFDF overall in Kalmar. And what a gorgeous country. And the experience there of, of playing disc golf and then the last hole is like at the castle. And uh, we just had such an awesome time traveling to Kalmar. And that wasn't that wasn't like a sponsored event, um, but that was a an overall that we got to go to. Uh, another really cool travel experience that um, Dave and I got to do is we went and toured in um, Brazil for three months. We were hired by a company called Mecanica de Protoçal. They brought us into a beach tour that was sponsored by a big beer brand called Skoll. Um, and we were able to travel up and down the eastern coast of Brazil and play at the beach every day. It was kind of cool. Wow. I'd love to hear more about that Brazilian tour. So you guys were playing on the east coast of Brazil. Yeah, we traveled. Let's see. The most northern city we were in was Recife. It's R-E-C-I-F-E. And um, we went as far south as Florianopolis. I think I mispronounced that. Florianopolis, which is crazy because I've actually been there. It's a beautiful beach. Oh, heck yeah. One of the best beaches in the world, I would say. Yeah, I love Brazil. Brazil is just uh, stunning. I actually did get to go twice. The first time was also with Mecanica de Proçal and um, Skoll Beer. And it was the summer before and Clifftown um, from L.A., Clifftown's an overall and freestyle player up in L.A. Do that tour the first time. It was only like two weeks. But then, you know, since Dave and I were a world champion couple, the next year I was able to secure the gig for Dave and I. And we left there with a wad of cash in our pockets. <laughs> nice. <laughs> the gringos. <laughs> we were the gringos. <laughs> So you mentioned Kalmar as being one of your favorite uh, travel experiences. And I know you won this golf at that WIFDF event, as well as winning both of the team events of Freestyle and DDC. But I also know that you've won the PDGA disc golf world title. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so 1990 was kind of my year, right? So um, my goal was to get the big three, the overall U.S. Open title, the PDGA title, and the ultimate national champion title. And I was really, I thought, poised to do all three. The only one of those that I didn't accomplish was with my team safari. Uh, we did make it into the finals, but we got beat by uh, by the San Francisco team. So, um, but yeah, it was a great year. Um, definitely, I was uh, at my peak in, in overall and um, won the PDGA women's title in Phoenix, Arizona. The courses are uh, big sort of uh, power thrower courses, pretty wide open. Um, as you know, like golf in Phoenix is like what they do. They're really good at it. So a lot of big green turfs and you could use, you know, you could use your rollers. And yeah, I was at the, at my, at my peak for disc golf at that time i still love the sport um and i keep thinking i'm gonna like play more you know not competitively but just to get out and play more but i just haven't really carved out the time i guess 
Well, you know, my problem is I really like disc golf too. And I used to be way into it, but my problem is I get like about eight, nine holes in, I get bored and I'm like, God, I got to go freestyle. I want to go freestyle. (laughs) (laughs) It's my problem. Well, it does feel like um, a much better workout (laughs) freestyling, um, especially for the time invested. And, you know, I mean, Hey, I'll, like we've talked about, you know, I got stuff going on and full-time professional and like all of us, right? It's like, don't quit your day job. This is our hobby. So, you know, sometimes you just got to make those choices and it's freestyle. So Amy, what is your favorite number of people to play with when you're on the beach? You know, some people like to play one-on-one, some people like five, six people in a mob up. What's your, what's your optimum experience regarding number of people you play with? Yeah, so um, there's two answers. I'm going to hit the first one is for ultimate. That would be 10, five versus five on the soft sand. But if all you've got is hard pack, then it would be two others in just like the perfect co-op situation. I don't care if there's music, but the steady wind, flat or hard pack, and two people is just like mystical what can happen is you wind up just playing way too long. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but then to kind of take that a step further, it's like, what if there were 25 or 30 people out there and you got to switch it up? And sometimes you play with five people and other times you're just playing with two others, but you get to play with different people. It's like one of the really cool things going on right now is like when I watched the tiny room challenge I haven't met a lot of the people that are winning and making it into these into the uh, finals so it's it's a crazy crazy sport and I'm so stoked that there's still people coming into it that there's still energy behind it like the whole Medellin Colombia crew unbelievable how many people are there 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 are people that are participating in this tiny room that i have not ever seen i was just there three months ago so they're continuing to put more new players into the pipeline so i mean there's definitely some ferocious energy going on there in south america you know shout out to james wiseman when remember well when was the medellin world what year was that 2014 Yeah. So um, shout out to James Wiseman, because um, I was on FPA in 2013, 2014, when we were making decisions about where where the world was going to be in 2014, about bring it in to Medellin and look at what has happened. It's like, I mean, the seed was planted and uh, it's really, really exciting. I hope that our um our governing body can keep that trend going <laughs> i'd love yeah. to see more countries adopt the sport and um i'm just so excited for where it's going now yeah well that's a great case study that you bring up and that there was a lot of fear about going and having worlds in uh medellin in a city that hadn't really proven itself or you know the organizers but it certainly paid off you know, I think that's something that hopefully will be explored even more. And I know that that is a direction that folks are looking to try to expand it more worldwide, uh, you know, like in Africa and in, you know, Australia and just trying to broaden the scope of where freestyle is happening. Yeah. Yeah. Having had the good fortune to travel to Australia, I just have always been shocked that 
there wasn't more Frisbee going on down there because they, their persona fits the Frisbee profile. Um, they're kind of irreverent and they're just like fun loving people. So, uh, I think ultimate has been growing steadily, but slowly down there. So, um, it'd be fun to, to get more freestylers coming out of Australia. For sure. And to go back to Tiny Room, it was really cool. There was a battle between Hong Kong and Nigeria. You know, it's like, okay, that was that was really awesome. It happened in the the Challenger uh, bracket that happened uh, the weekend before the finals. So it was just like, oh, wow, that's really awesome. Yeah, it's a big world. So circling back to the ideal jam size, what's your ideal wind condition? My ideal wind condition is to have some. I think I'm not real knowledgeable about wind speeds, but I guess um, I do like strong winds. But I think once it's over about 13 miles an hour, it becomes um, a little too challenging um, for me to work with. But here, a lot of times the best beach conditions happen in the wintertime. So there's a pretty brisk wind oftentimes um when we go out and play in the winter so yeah, i really love that game i mean what happens when you have the strong winds is you just experience zero gravity with the thing like a teeny amount of effort on the set and you're going to get a lot of time to do what you want to do to take it back in or catch it yeah there's a fine line on it being too strong i mean i love the wind and i i like the strong wind too but when the wind gets to be so strong where it's all about lip management instead of just jamming then it can be a little bit of a a struggle so i would define as i like the wind to be strong but not so strong where you are having to only just play around with what the plate of the disc is where you can you know back off a bit and what wind speed do you think that is it's around 13 or 14 right yeah, I would say you start getting around to those 15, 16, 17 numbers, and it's about, you know, just surviving the the lip management of it. But okay. when you get into the seven, eight mile an hour, I'm not a wind expert either, but you get that seven, eight mile an hour and, and you can just do the carving. Like one of my favorite things of playing on the beach is, is kind of the, the carving aspects of like, I love just a perfectly placed hoop where you're just watching the disc kind of slow motion through your hoop, right? To somebody's standing guidus, you know, it's just like, that feels just as good as doing the guidus to me. Yeah. Yeah, I love playing at the beach. There's no doubt. I just really haven't had any interest in playing in any other location. I'm just lucky because I live where I live. So I get to be that selective. That's cool. And I guess that answers the beach versus grass question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yes, it does. So do you have any advice for players who are trying to improve their win game? Yes. My main advice for any newer player is to get really good at throwing. And, you know, you don't need to um, necessarily have any particular environment to become really good at throwing. But that was the way I always approached it. Like a great player like Stacy would tolerate playing with me is because I could make her look good because I was good at throwing. Once you're good at throwing and you can crank Z's, you're going to attract players that will help you with everything else. That's great advice. Totally. If you can dish up to your partner 
your partner's going to want to play with you. You're going to get a lot more partners. It makes so much sense. I, I love throwing too. I've it's just always been like, I mean, I'm so proud of my throwing. Like I've had the good fortune to not have issues in any of my upper body joints, you know? So, um, I've been able to, uh, you know, be very ambidextrous and I always like, you know, approaching a throw where I'm not changing my grip from the catch. So I'm going to like it, that leaves you in a place also where you can be kind of experimental. And, uh, I, I just think the throwing is, uh, for me anyway, I don't know. It's just like super satisfying part about freestyle. And I want to, I want to add something about throwing in the wind that I've noticed lately. Like usually in a jam, when I'm throwing to somebody, I'm throwing it to them. Like the, the line of the flight is just straight to them. And I'm trying to like set it so that it stops where they are and they can do some kind of a restricted pull. When there's a heavy wind, it's so important to face the wind that you never want to throw it to the person directly to them because now they have to turn their, their side to the wind and they can't do a pull because they're going to wind shadow themselves as they pull it in. You always want to throw it a little bit upwind. And if the wind is strong enough, you want to throw it even further upwind and even error more upwind because they're going to have a chance to run upwind to get it. If it's downwind, there's no way they can run to get it because they're going to wind shadow and it's going to be gone. So it's like this well, little thought adjustments that you have to make in the heavy wind. I'm glad you bring that up because uh, another tidbit that I think I bring with me from Ultimate um, on the throwing frontier is that I don't actually throw it right toward someone's torso. I'm going to throw it upwind of them just slightly. Um, I think I don't even really look at their body. I'm looking at a space ahead of them. And that's something that you do when you're playing, looking at a space that's way, way ahead of them because they're making a cut and they're going to, you know, crisscross into the disc. But um, yeah, that's how I always approach my throw, not right at a person. So here's just a, a random, a couple random questions, kind of quick fire. So what is your favorite trick? Twistoflex. That's a good one. I've never done a twistoflex in my life. My body just does not work that way, <laughs> but it's a good one. Here's another quick question. What is your favorite word in the jammer lexicon? Hain? Is that still used? Oh, yeah. I think it's Hain. That's Hain. <laughs> Hain is still very, very relevant. Goob makes sponge Hain may not be as relevant <laughs> as it was, but... Yeah, I would agree. So there's a question that came from one of our fans that I don't understand. It says, describe the Becca Rue that Amy is known for. Do you know what that means, Amy? Yeah. Um, gosh, you know, I'm I'm a little out of practice, right, because of my surgery and, and leading up to my surgery, I wasn't really, I didn't have my full game. I was, I was like over the years kind of continually losing little pieces of my game. So it's going to be really hard for me to describe it because I haven't done it in so long. I believe it's a, um, it's a, it, with a clockwise spin, it would be, um, set to a behind the back pull, rotate, um, counterclockwise and pull the disc out from underneath the left leg. <laughs> okay. I think I've seen you do that one before. Yeah. Okay. It's just a simple sequence. Nothing too amazing. I didn't know it had it's, a name. It's kind of like an offshoot of keys to the highway. 
<laughs> Dave named that one. And I mean, my maiden name is Beckin. So that's, so it's, you know, Beck Aru. Okay. So that now it makes sense. Now it all makes sense. <laughs> Do you have any other names, uh, moves named after you? No, not that. I mean, maybe people are saying it behind my back, but uh, nothing that they've told me that my <laughs> you, you know what, you know what the nickname is? <laughs> uh oh, go ahead. Dude. Oh, yeah. Yeah, dude. Or actually, it's Hain Dude. <laughs> okay, so you have won many competitions in many different flying disc disciplines. Is there one in particular that really stands out as the sweetest one, and why? Oh, gosh. That, you know, that's such a hard question because the different things that different experiences and different times in my life have had major impact. I guess, you know, I guess it's the first U.S. Open overall win, which was in 1989. I worked really hard to, you know, practice for that. It was, it's kind of lonely sometimes when you're getting ready for an overall. I was um, living in L.A., and so I wasn't like practicing the overall sports with my um safari teammates i would go down and play ultimate with them on the weekends but um i you know so i was like up at home in la working on disc golf at la mirada and working on um distance throwing like just all by myself and then to be able to uh get the title in 89 was pretty sweet at that time, too, I mean, there was like some money in that sport. It's like 2000 to win the overall. And then each individual um, event had money for first, second and third. So, you know, you made like a few grand winning it. So that was kind of nice. So the first one was the sweetest one. That makes a lot of sense. That's how I feel, too. My first win was the sweetest win. The first cut is the deepest. That's what they say. I remember all the second places. That's where I'm. I'm just bitter. <laughs> I've got the most second places in the whole world. Oh, sure of it. No, but no. we all do because that's part of the gig. Yeah, I know. I know. I don't really. I don't really wish I was. I wish I was less competitive. I, I feel like being competitive now is sort of to my deficit. You know, because it's. It's kind of that, like the Buddhists, you know, they look at it like that's lust because you're like trying to get something that you don't have. You're trying to win something and trying to be better than other people and stuff. And so I, I'm just not convinced that I really love being competitive, even though I am. <laughs> so I'm always trying. Yeah, it, it's a double-edged sword for sure. I mean, if you want to excel at something and you have a goal, it kind of is there to be that competitive nature you know and then you know also i totally understand the like oh the competitive side sort of eats away at my soul in a way but the other side also enriches it so there's like kind of this weird dance that that you do um and hopefully you don't go too far one direction or the other yeah that was deep rando man that was yeah it's true (laughs) no it's true you have to yeah. Like the competition, the, the, the competitiveness drives you to improve and to practice and it, it gives you a goal. 
but with that comes the angst of I don't have it yet or I failed or, you know, it's just they go together. Life's a balance, I think. We were talking with Stork uh, early on and he was talking about, you know, that need for uh, tournaments because we all talk about how much fun it is to get together and jam. And, you know, there's no, no competitive stakes involved. But there also is something about like when you play ultimate, you play to a score and it makes it that much more compelling when you're, you know, playing a, for a score than just kind of playing, you know, pick up ultimate and uh, not really keeping score. Well, the thing is with ultimate, like I've never I've never played in a game where we didn't keep score. And for freestyle, when I first started freestyling, like I really hated the fact that it was just like this creative thing and there's all these judges and stuff. I, n- I never was attracted to that at all because, you know, I mean, I, I told you guys it came from track, you know, it's like you're either the first one across the tape or you're not. That is, you know, an individual sport like that is the most pure of, of in that sense that you either win or lose with freestyle, you know, the competition can can be a little rough because sometimes people think they get gypped. But it is one of the hard things for me, or it was when I first started competing in freestyle to like accept how we did all this judging and stuff because it just isn't my, it just wasn't what I was familiar with. Yeah, the gray area of judging in freestyle can be very difficult to accept. And because like you say, it's not like, you're running a race against somebody, either cross the finish line first or not. In freestyle, it's like you could be running a freestyle race with somebody and somebody say, well, I didn't really like the way you ran that race. I kind of like the way the other person ran that race. You know, it's just sort of weird, this way that we, what we value and how we judge does kind of feel a bit uncomfortable. But I mean, it's art, you know, so like other art, art form sports, you know, there is no other way to do it. I get that. But it was one of the things that kind of was hard when I first started to to accept or be attracted to as a competitor. Well, that was really fun to hear Amy's experience about uh, coming into the sport and how she felt about the judging system. And, uh, you know, it just kind of makes me reflect on my own experience. Um, when I came into the sport, in the beginning anyways, I didn't really think about the judging system, whether it was good or bad, you know, versus um, like a scoring system where it's obvious if you win. I just accepted it for what it was, went out on the field and played and got the scores I got and um, just thought, oh, I need to get better, play harder. And I don't know, a little bit later in my career, um, when Matt and I actually were playing together a lot and we were really serious about wanting to do well in competitions... We had this interaction with Arthur Coddington. It was really cool, actually. He offered to coach us to help us um, do better at competitions because he could see the desire that we had. And so his advice was, let's sit down and look at these scores and see how what you did on the field translated into the scores that you got. And I took two things away from that, which were really actually really eye-opening and cool. The first one was that um, I had never really thought about 
how does my play relate to the numbers that are on the page like in a more direct way? I'd always thought I need to play better, but it actually looking at the scores and really thinking about it and analyzing it, it changed how I practiced a lot and changed how Matt and I both practiced, especially for competition. But even in our jams, we kind of said, okay, we're going to set a goal and we're going to work towards like less drops or whatever it was based on how we wanted our scores to change. But the other thing that was interesting to me was that Arthur looked at our diff scores. He just looked at us and shook his head and basically was just telling us that we kind of got boosted on our diff scores, which was also surprising to me because I hadn't really thought too hard about being boosted. You know, I had heard the term, but I didn't really hadn't really experienced it in that kind of way. So it was an interesting experience. And it did change my relationship with the judging system a little bit. Oh, that's really interesting to hear because, you know, I had a similar experience to you when I first came in. I didn't give the judging system any thought. It just kind of it was what it was. I never, you know, did this dialogue with myself about art and how do you judge art it just it just it was it just kind of went into a competition and tried to do my best and i will tell you i always steered clear of doing those analytics of diving into what past scoring sheets because i was just like i just didn't want to go in there and unearth that stuff because i just felt like for me it it wasn't going to help i always wanted to stay true to my game and not try to let the judging system shape what i wanted to do because i really wanted to approach that artistic side so i really kind of put that whole concept at arm's length not try to let it influence my game yeah but it's interesting now that i'm you know at the end of my career and i really do think about kind of the absurd dance that competition is with trying to judge this thing that is kind of not judgeable Mm. (laughs) you know it's really in the eye of the beholder so, you know, if you're artistic sport, I mean, that's just kind of the dance with the devil you got to do if you want to have competition. Yeah, totally. It's it, it's interesting how the competition, in some ways, the competition drives the style of the art. Like, I mean, in the example that I gave, you know, we did adjust how we played. And the adjustment that we made, I would say, was before we thought we have to do our absolute hardest moves and go for everything. And afterwards, we thought we have to be able to complete relatively hard moves, but still catch it, <laughs> like get a little bit more serious about uh, clean play, right? But yeah. um, just in general, take, taking a step back, if it's an art and all forms are valid, when you look at the scores, not all forms score well. Right. Well, it's interesting because just our last episode, we talked about how the judging system shapes the current play of the day. Your experience kind of validates that observation that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, with that, uh, really looking forward to Virginia States. I'm so excited that it's going to happen. And I really hope to see you there, Randy, and all of our listeners as well. Yes, and we are going to have an all-you-can-eat avocado buffet. (laughs) I can't wait. And they have Mexican food, burritos, vegetarian that are super good. Yes, indeed. And on that note, Jake, I will talk to you next time. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. To contact us or for more info, check us out at frisbeeguru.com. Home to Haynesville, Shooting the Frisbees, and live streaming freestyle frisbee. Oh, yeah!